Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, October 22nd, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. It's for informational purposes only. I'm not a financial advisor. I cannot give you individual investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Um, one thing I want to point out before we get going here is the um, the actionable intelligence alert newsletter. Um, a lot of the things that we discuss here, the themes, the various investment thesis that we are talking about here. Um, if you are interested in understanding how we take advantage of those discussion or those ideas. Um, that's what the newsletter is for. A lot of people uh, seem to get some value out of it. There's also a Discord channel that uh, we have where subscribers meet uh, daily and share ideas, not just in the newsletter, but their own ideas. It's uh, a lot of folks have said it's pretty good. So if you are interested in taking advantage of these ideas, I will say that we are primarily right now focused on energy in the portfolio. And the portfolio is uh, currently and has been outperforming the S&P 500. Uh, that's no guarantee that that will continue. But I think that, you know, maybe it was luck, maybe it was skill, however you want to describe it. You know, we were very early into energy. So we had court, several quarters where nothing was happening. And then as we came out of COVID, we were or the pandemic, we were positioned in these companies when they were at historically low valuations. And that's the whole idea of what we're trying to do here, right? We're trying to find opportunities in beaten down sectors that have a catalyst for change and a revaluation upward. So that's, that's what we're doing there. So if you are interested in that, um, look in the show notes and there is a link to the subscription uh, tab. I'll also say that uh, we've really picking up on the subscribers. We're like 275 subscribers away from hitting 10,000. Um, the goal is to hit 10,000 subscribers by the end of the year. Um, and people we're seeing the subscriptions pick up now on the videos on the YouTube channel. And I just want to see that uh, continue, have our YouTube subscribers crack 10,000. So share, like, uh, if, you, if you get any value out of this video. All right, let's get going for this week. So I saw this uh, article uh, and basically, if you don't have Bloomberg, sometimes it's hard to get to some of these articles, paywall protected. But anyways, the summary is here and that's what I've seen other places. Um, the numbers needed for, inve for investment in renewable energy keep going up and up. New estimate for attaining net zero emissions, I presume this is for the world, $114 trillion. So the GDP of the U.S. is about $25 trillion a year. So you're talking five to six times yearly GDP um, to attain net zero. That's just monetarily. Obviously, there's constraints that will not allow for this to ever happen. Uh, we've talked about that before, right? But this goes back to one of our main 
ideas that, you know, this quest for this net zero emissions, zero carbon world in a world that's made from carbon, by the way. So I'm not sure exactly what all that means, but, you know, I'm not going to get into that discussion again. What I'm going to focus on is, you know, the political zeitgeist of the current administrations or the current leadership in the West is to go to this um, goal of net zero, cranking up the renewables. We see how that's working. Uh, you can judge it any way you want. You could say that it's not working. You could say that it's been interfered with the transition because of the war and the uh, lack of energy from Russia. You can make any, you can take any position you want. The bottom line is, uh, as long as these current leaderships stay in power, they're going to push for this. You just saw this, uh, you know, kind of funny named Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. that has a lot of SOPs in it for uh, renewable energy. Look, when I saw renewable energy start coming to the forefront when I was at Duke Energy, it was a joke. We all thought it was a joke. Uh, there was a few clowns that had some wind farms. We'd have these plant manager meetings. They'd come. We'd kind of look at them. They were goofballs, younger guys. We thought they were goofballs, but this thing's gone, got traction. So there's a whole industry now. There's a whole battery of lobbyists, lawyers, um, developers, whatever have you. These are hundreds of thousands of people. And so this thing has really grown and there's, you know, there's now a constituency for this. So I don't see this ending in the West anytime soon. There's going to continue to push this. Will we ever attain net zero emissions? No, we will not. It's impossible. It will not happen. But that's part of the goal, right? It's the same thing. You know, then you can never achieve the goal because there is no real goal there. So, which then, you know, is perfect for the political class and for the rent seekers that are involved in these industries because, uh, we just need more money. We need more money, more legislation. That's what usually happens. You know, Milton Friedman talked about this. Murray Rothbard talks about these kind of things. I don't want to get into the political science of, of you know, how this works. Bottom line is heads we win, tails we win more. They're going to try to do it. The minerals aren't there, as we've demonstrated. You're going to need a ton of hydrocarbons for the mining and processing of these materials uh, to build the plants, whatever. And so we're going to win regardless. Okay. And um, that's what I wanted to, that's the point I want to make. Do I think that we will ever cover the world in solar panels and wind farms and spend $114 trillion? No, absolutely not. It's not going to happen, but we're, we're going to, as long as the current leadership is in place, push towards these things. So I would be very careful being ecstatic or hitching my wagon to industries that basically um, exist on political favor. Now, if you got a Republican administration and Congress, it would slow down, but it's not going to stop. Like I said, the lobbying is so big now, the base of power and money that's involved in um, making this, pushing this forward is, is, has reached a critical mass several you know years ago. So um, it's there. It's going to have its sops given to it, like farming and defense industry and the pharma industry. That's just how things work. So, but uh, so that's that's why you know I don't think that this you know we will spend 114 trillion dollars on this in the world. We have too many other 
problems that need to be solved that aren't going to allow for this. But we will spend hundreds of billions of dollars and that will be sufficient to, I said, like I said before, you know, you have a situation right now, which I think I talked about last week, just as an example. I mean, lithium prices are going through the roof because as these batteries, you know, that I keep being told, well, we're going to have better, different technologies that are going to use cheaper materials. That's fine. And that very well could happen. But right now we need lithium and we don't have enough lithium. Um, we need copper. We don't have enough copper. We need various things that we have, don't have enough of. And then if you really want to look down at just, you know, doing this, you know, why I call these things rebuildables is, you know, these things, you don't just build a solar farm, then it lasts forever. It's the same thing, misconception people have with oil wells. The same thing with a wind farm. You don't just build a wind turbine and it just runs forever. These things have a shelf life. They're machines, they're mechanical devices. Uh, they degrade, they deteriorate, and they have to be replaced. And so when you look at the resources that go into making these things, you know, the shelf life's even if they're 20 or 25 years, as, as they say on the design, which I haven't seen in many cases, I've seen degradation far quicker, then you're in this constant cycle of rebuilding, right? And so where do you get all the new materials? So if you're going to, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you're on a um, uh, treadmill that you can't get off. So look, these things are going to be here. We're going to make money off it because the minerals have not been mined and there's going to be tremendous opportunity there. But uh, do I think we're going to spend $114 trillion and get to net zero? Absolutely not. That's not likely to happen. All right, let's move on. So I wanted to talk about uh, Schlumberger's Q3 earnings. Uh, they were came out yesterday and Schlumberger, if in case you don't know, is probably the world's biggest and best oil field services company. They do all kinds of uh, just about everything you can do in the oil field onshore and offshore. And so while I like to uh, look at their earnings report uh, and, and talk about it on the, on the channel is because we have, we're very bullish on oil field services. Um, you know, being that oil and gas exploration and production is a depleting asset. It's an extractive industry. Therefore, every day that you're in business extracting uh, minerals from the ground, you have to replace them or eventually you go out of business. And so that's what this company helps these people do. Now, we've been in a prolonged depression slash recession in the oil field services companies. But I pointed out maybe a little bit over a year ago that that was going to change, especially with these elevated oil prices and the decade of underspending. And so now we're starting to see the spending pick up. We're starting to see activity pick up. It's starting to reflect itself and manifest itself in earnings and in discussion that these companies are having. And so this is the 800-pound gorilla. And I just wanted to point out a couple things here because, like I said, in the portfolio, we have several or many oil field services stocks, both onshore and offshore. And this kind of gives us a pulse of what's going on kind of gives us a forward-looking radar of what's going to go on. Now, that doesn't mean every company is going to do well, but this is uh, the bellwether, if you will. And so uh, what I thought was interesting, this is a company that has like uh, quarterly sales of like in the billions. So this is pretty significant, uh, what they, some of the numbers they reported. Just This is just notes from the conference call. Um, to start, year-on-year -year revenue growth accelerated to 28%. So that Revenue was up 28% year over year. 
the highest growth since 2001, more than a decade ago. Internationally, all areas grew and the pace of growth increased to 13% sequentially and 26% year over year. So just quarter to quarter, sequential growth is happening. This is what we thought would happen. And these are the comments from the CEO. Uh, to sum up, we entered the second half of the year with the expectation for strong growth momentum and raised our revenue guidance for the full year. This was predicated on a robust international outlook, the strengthening of offshore activity, and the broadening impact of service pricing improvement. If you look at the numbers, and I just you know took a cursory look, even their margins are going to go up. That's one of the things that we were seeing in some of the companies we had because of labor costs being high shortage of labor, shortage of material, we were seeing pressure on margins. Yes, we saw a recovery in revenue, but we saw costs going up faster than revenue in some of the companies that we have. And we're already starting to see now, we, we thought that this would ease over time. And we've seen that, uh, at least at Schlumberger, where the margins uh, have started to increase. And so that bodes well for the future cash flow and earnings. Looking ahead to the fourth quarter, we expect another quarter of sequential revenue growth and EBITDA margin expansion to close the year. So um, you can read the whole thing. Uh, they also, if you go to their website, they have like, I think a link to the call and you can listen to some of the analyst questions. The CEO actually publishes a letter where he summarizes a lot of these things. Suffice to say, I mean, I think the market really liked this. The stock was up almost, I think, around 10% yesterday, which is a pretty big deal for a company this large. Um, it made a new 52-week high. It busted above $50 a share. I think uh, we got, we. this is not in the portfolio, but this was mentioned by me as a, you know, publicly as a free pick, if you will, um, when I start first started talking about oil field services. And I think the stock is up, uh, you know, 50, 60% just since the start of this year, probably more since when I started talking about it, which I don't remember exactly when last year I started talking about it. But suffice to say, this is very positive for the oil field services companies, the rest of them. And we did see a broad-based rally uh, among many of them because I think you know many investors probably thought, well, if Schlumberger uh, is reporting this, then what are it's, it, you know, it makes sense to possibly view that these other companies are going to come in with some decent earnings also as they begin to report. Now, am I still recommending Schlumberger? Uh, no, but uh, you probably can get more torque from some of the smaller companies. They probably have more of an opportunity to go, you know, three, five, 10 times. Uh, you will note if you're a subscriber, you know that we have several junior small oil field services companies in Canada, which we feel, you know, I think a couple of them are under $100 million market caps. And during previous cycles, they performed, you know, very well. We expect the same thing to happen as activity uh, picks up. Um, a lot of people have asked me, uh, well, the spending isn't what it used to be. That's correct. Um, how are we going to have a boom? Well, you need to understand, you need to go back and don't forget that because we had one of the largest, probably the worst um, oil field services depressions of all time in the, over the last several years, this business has shrunk massively. Um, many companies went out of business, many rigs were scrapped, many people that were in the industry left the industry. 
uh, it's basically, like I said, it's atrophied, it's shrunk. And so you don't need the same level of spending in order to um, have a boom or mini boom, if you will, in these, in these stocks. And I would suggest that because of the underinvestment, we've already seen the, you know, one of the themes we've been talking about around oil and gas, even in the context of this economic um, downswings, if you will, worldwide, uh, pullback in economic activity, we haven't really seen the oil price collapse. And that should be telling us something. And what it's telling us is that there's been insufficient investment and supply is not, you know, uh, or it's tightly balanced or slightly in deficit. And we, and we know this because we continue to see inventories of oil decrease. You know, I said before, especially when we had the original, some pullbacks after the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia, we had this massive move to about 130 bucks a barrel. And then it's been pulling back ever since. And people have asked me, well, when are you going to get out? I'm not going to get out of these companies as long as inventories keep going down. At some point, this is a problem. And these cycles for investment in new production and um, normally last years once they get started, they don't. Now we got short circuited on an earlier by um, we, were, we were recovering before the pandemic. I had already been talking about that. And then the pandemic came. I mean, if you have a situation like that where you, you know, knock world demand down by 20% because you lock the entire world down, yes, I would suggest to you that in, in temporarily the uh, oil price will go down. But that was the tremendous buying opportunity because, you know, as I've said before, I, I, I knew it was a tremendous buying opportunity. Why? Because we had these people coming out and saying, this is it, folks. This is our, op I mean, the, the WAGs, the true believers. This is our opportunity to finally get rid of oil and gas. We should take this opportunity during these lockdowns to really consider what we're doing and we can really make the big changes now. Well, I knew that wasn't going to happen because the world runs on oil and gas, runs on hydrocarbons. And as I've pointed out before, you know, we talked about the decarbonization efforts costing $114 trillion, you know, based on Bloomberg's Green's um, estimation. You know, the world's already spent trillions and trillions of dollars in hydrocarbon uh, contribution to world energy has went from 82% to 81%. So long story short, um, barring some major like deflationary depression worldwide, barring some type of pandemic where they shut the world down again, then I think that we are probably in a sustained recovery. Um, do I, I don't know if it's going to shoot the lights out. I don't know how vigorous it'll be because we do have restrained spending in the U.S. But if you read the comments from this earnings report, you will see that inter international activity is increasing and they're very optimistic about Middle Eastern spending on new new uh, reserves and, and, and new um, exploration in the Middle East, which hasn't kicked in yet. So. Um, they're very positive. Like I said, uh, the stock liked it. It was up to a new 52-week high yesterday, and we're seeing broad-based rally across the entire industry. So um, I'm, I'm still bullish on this. I think actually, to my mind, oil field services have more torque and more opportunity than your probably your exploration production companies at this point, but that's just my opinion. And you know, many people say, well, how is this actionable? I mean, you can get the individual companies. That's what we've done in the portfolio, or you could just buy the ETF, buy the OIH, which is the Oil Field Services ETF. Um, there's probably some other smaller ETFs, I don't know. 
but uh, you know, you could you could just be lazy and do it that way, and you'll still probably outperform the market over the next couple of years. Um, like I said before, if you look at previous cycles, they tend to last, you know, several years because it takes years to mobilize equipment, get going, get the projects going. Uh, there's a timeline, right? Because these are typically, you know, bigger projects and it takes time. So this, this just wanted to go over this because, like I said, we have been on this oil field services uh, opportunity and this is the bellwether. Some further comments says... Uh, again from the CEO's comments we are very constructive into the deep water market going forward the recent pipeline of final investment decisions that has been blessed in recent months the pipeline that is set in 2023 according to Woodmac is 170 billion of FID that will be the highest in 10 years since 2011 and the mobilization of projects across a different developed basin continues remember this guy's this is his comments. He's French, so his English isn't like textbook. Basically, what they're saying is the spending is going to increase. This consultancy, Wood, Wood McKenzie, is saying that we're going to have the highest amount of um, investment decisions uh, that we've seen in the last 10 years. So this bodes well, obviously, for these projects and for spending. Offshore has indeed started. Offshore, we have conditioned from break-even price that will that are with all investment decisions of below 60, if not 40, that are set to support a very strong offshore environment for oil and in the gas environment, obviously, and this is very visible both in deep water and in the Middle East. Middle East will have one of the highest growth in offshore environment with more than 30 rigs. We are just contracted in the last six months by Saudi for oil development offshore. Now, what does that that's good for them, and, I'm, and, and I can appreciate that they're going to, you know, do that development in Saudi. But what does that tell you about Saudi Arabia? I contend that the Saudis are at peak production. I contend that they may be at the top of their Hubert curve and may be facing decline. Why are they moving offshore if they have, you know, think about it, Gawar, these big fields like Gawar that have been producing for 60 years. I mean, they have to be tired and worn out. This was Matt Simmons's contention in his book, Twilight in the Desert, which I think came out in uh, something like 2005 or six, something like this. And he was talking about, based in that book, that he felt that Saudi Arabia was near a peak. And I kind of uh, agreed with that assumption at the time. And then we kind of fell into that whole shale boom in the US, which really brought so much production online that really, I think, covered up a lot of the decline rates uh, around the rest of the rest of the world from these uh, old, tired oil fields. And so now we've reached maybe to the point where shale's not going to be that big growth. You know, you remember, I've saw, I talked about this before, I saw articles before uh, in the Wall Street Journal and major publications where during the drill baby drill days, people were people were actually saying things like, well, the United States can increase production to 20 to 25 million barrels a day. That, that was crazy. This is what happens, though, in these booms. Uh, we get all these wild, you know, comments like that. And so I don't think that's going to happen. I think based on the comments we've seen from many of the shale producers in the U.S., that many of them have are getting they, their inventory of tier one assets uh, is becoming exhausted. And so, I mean, even people at Pioneer said that, 
you know, something to the effect that we could drill out everything rapidly in the next five to seven years, or we can just stay on the pace we're on and push out our peak till, you know, 10 to 12 years. And so 10 to 12 years is not very long, you know, and so um, when you hear things like that, when you hear that the Saudis are moving offshore now to do a lot of their spending, that tells you that onshore, the prospects are probably not that good. That's just a little clue that I'm picking up there, but you know that I may be wrong. Notwithstanding that, uh, we are, I think, in a new up cycle for uh, oil field services spending and should benefit a lot of the stocks. If you're looking for an industry, if you're looking for some place that hasn't really moved yet in the oil and gas sector, that's where I would look. So this came from uh, Nine Point Partners. Uh, Eric Nuttall puts these up all the time. Um, Despite the largest release from strategic stockpiles in history, U.S. petroleum inventory still fell. This is the crudes plus gasoline plus distillate inventory deficit um, going down. This is why I stay bullish. This is why, uh, you know, we're just not. It's funny because I was listening to a podcast with uh, Meb Faber and uh, Cuppy the other day. And he was even talking about like this thing with the Saudis that oils the new arbiter of economic um, policy, if you will. Uh, it's not really going to be interest rates. It's going to be oil. And you saw what the Saudis did recently. They cut the quotas. Um, they weren't able to produce up to the quotas. But, you know, it, then we have this tit for tat back and forth with the Biden administration threatening all these things. And so if you increase the amount of SPR, the Saudis will just cut more. Okay, so the more that the Fed tries to kill demand by raising rates and, and, and reducing economic activity, okay, if they reduce, um, they're trying to reduce oil demand, but it's so inelastic in the short, medium term, it's very difficult to do. Long term, it's you can do it. I mean, like I said before, if you put a $50 barrel tax on oil and raise the price of oil, and kept it there, it wouldn't be politically palatable. Let's just say you did, people would begin to change their behavior. Once they sell their Yukon and start taking the bus, they're not gonna just switch back immediately. So in the short term, they'll absorb the cost in the short and the medium term because of the sunk cost and the convenience. But over the long term, if prices stay high enough for long enough, they will change their behavior. But like I said, this is so sensitive of political um, uh, situation because, you know, the, as James Kunstler said, the United States is a happy motoring society. That's an unsustainable society and you have a finite amount of oil and yet you're, you know, people are driving in individual vehicles commuting every day to downtown or, you know, 20, 30 miles each way to work. It's not sustainable. And so at some point it's going to be a problem. But for our purposes of, you know, investing, um, as long as inventories keep going down, we're going to, uh, and, and I'll, put an, I'll put a link to that Mub Faber interview because uh, those guys are actually friends. And so you get a little bit more back and forth, a little bit more provocative statements than you get when, you know, sometimes, I mean, Cuppy's pretty pr provocative already, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more deeper interview. I, I kind of enjoyed it a lot more than some of the other interviews that are just kind of perfunctory, you know, so, um, but anyways, yeah. So if the Federal Reserve thinks, well, we're just going to keep wrecking the economy till we bring down, you know, oil demand and economic activity, 
Well, then OPEC has already demonstrated, I think, that they'll just keep cutting. They can cut faster than you can destroy demand. So at some point, uh, the, the uh, Fed's going to throw in the towel. And then, like I said, we're just going to have an acceptance of a higher base level of inflation going forward, which isn't bad for the federal government because you know this is how they steal wealth from the middle and lower class to deal with the over-indebtedness. But that's a whole other video. That's more of a George Gammon thing. I'm going to stay away from that kind of stuff. Uh, but anyways, this is what I look at. And as long as this, this is not positive, you need tremendous amount of spending to reverse this. And again, at some point, we're not going to be in a recession anymore. At some point, the war is going to end in Ukraine. At some point, Europe is going to get its act together. At some point, you know, China is going to lift its COVID restrictions. At some, you know, and then not only that, you have the relentless pressure of the billions of people that are trying in, the, in Asia and in the developing world that are trying to attain a higher level of uh, economic uh, wealth and that's going to that's going to constantly pressure demand for energy higher. I think I think this is going to be a tremendous decade for energy. That I've said that before, and I'll say it again. Barring some, like I said, new pandemic where they lock the world down, or an asteroid hitting the Earth, or something crazy like that, or California falling into the ocean, something wild would have to happen. I think to really derail this, a worldwide deflationary depression, uh, something like that. But. Uh, I just don't see that in the cards right now. So this was in the US. This is worldwide. This is uh, total oil inventories. You can see the, the band of the five-year average. Here's the five-year average line, dotted line. Here's the upper and lower bands. Here is 2021. And here's 2022. I mean, it's going down, folks. And so... Um, a lot of the reason why you have pressure on the oil price, people say, well, why aren't we at record highs? Well, not at record highs because people have this perception that um, economic growth and activity is going to decline and therefore the oil price will go down. So you have pressure on the oil price, but eventually uh, this, will, this will overcome. Just like in the short term, you know, it's just like Warren Buffett says about company earnings. In the long term, that's what matters on a stock's price is in the earnings in the long term in the short to medium term it's sentiment and liquidity okay uh he didn't say that but Druckenmiller says that and that's exactly right you could have periods of short term mid medium term times where sentiment and liquidity are such that uh the price goes down or is weak now i don't think the price is that weak when you have brent at 90 dollars a barrel and supposedly the world's you know heading for this economic depression I mean, uh, that's just my, I mean, Europe's total chaos. I'm going to show you a slide here, which really shocked me here in a minute about what's going on in Europe. One thing I wanted to point out here, uh, I, I've shown something similar to this before, um, but this was on Twitter again. So I'd like to show these things when they pop up, just to remind people, this is the amount of terawatt hours, uh, trillions of watt hours that the world uses Um so what you'll notice, this goes back to 1800, you'll see that uh, um, these are modern biofuels and you see coal came around, you know, the industrial revolution around uh, the mid eight, late, later half of the 1800s. 
But what you see is you don't see like biomass go away. And then, you know, when oil, the oil age started, you know, around 1900 or late 1800s, coal use didn't go away. You see, this is the idea when we talk about, well, we're going to go to zero carbon or we're going to get rid of these other, they don't displace one another because the, the amount of energy keeps going up as we have more applications and society becomes more complex, more technologically evolved. It requires more energy inputs. This is the point I try to make. Yes, you can have periods of a year, two, three years where you have these cyclical downturns, but in the end, this is what happens. So if you add renewables, which here they are up here, which you can barely see, they're not going to displace all of these other energy sources. They're just going to add to them because the, now you might have a small downtick, but it's not going to, coal didn't disappear because oil, natural gas, and nuclear came around. Okay. It's, it's something that you need to recognize the idea that the stuff's just going to go away. Now, at some point, they will become depleting assets and price will ration and we will have to come up with other ideas. But, you know, does anybody really know the true uh, endowment of oil and natural gas on the earth? I, I don't think so. You know, we, we, I've seen people put together little montages of all the predictions about the world running out of oil and gas going back to the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. You would see occasional headlines, but we don't. We, you know, as the price goes up, um, formerly uneconomic deposits become economic. As technology advances, you saw what happened with shale. It opened up a whole base, ba several basins that were inaccessible before for exploration. You see the performance that's happening now offshore. You see the discussion that Schlumberger said. I mean, there's the world's oceans have not been fully explored. So um, it doesn't mean it's going to get cheaper or easier. It just means that the, you know, as price goes up, um, more things become economic. As technology increases, the ability to exploit things at a cheaper price becomes easier. You see the now almost automated rigs they have. You'll see multi-pad, multi-well pads where you have a drilling rig. You know, you can go on YouTube and see these. Uh, it's kind of cool, you know, the old types rigs where you see the floor hands with the chains and they're tripping out pipe and they're all got drilling mud all over them. I mean, that does, the new rigs aren't really like that. Some of the newer ones, I mean, they, everything's pretty much automated on the drill floor. And if you have a multi-well setup, that's, you know, like I you have the wells starting in the center of the pad and going out different directions, the, 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 the rig can actually move, it, move itself. It can crawl to the new location, which is, you know, 50 feet over or whatever and start drilling the next well. So that, that lowers costs, right? That uh, less labor, less downtime for the rig to move it. Um, all these things, you know, incrementally by themselves don't mean anything, but cumulatively lower the price and increase the efficiency. And so those are the things that happen over time. So no one really, you know, CO2 flooding, okay, chemical treatment, water floods, um, you know, when you go into a basin, you may only recover 15, 10, 15, 20% maybe of the original oil in place. And so they've developed new technologies over time. One of them is CO2. Uh, there's a company, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, anyway, they have a tremendous, right here, along here around the Gulf Coast of Texas, Louisiana, they have a tremendous CO2 pipeline set up where they ship CO2 gas uh, that they've captured 
in various, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they do. And then they pump it into the ground and it just, it pushes more oil to the wellbore. So you're able to ex incrementally exploit more of the oil, original oil in place that you couldn't get with the, um, you know, first generation uh, production technique. So all of these things are always happening. Higher prices will uh, get people motivated to do that. Um, like I said, you know, when you have these higher prices, you can watch some videos online where you have these guys that are entrepreneurial. They go around and reactivate these old wells where they get, you know, two, three, four barrels a day out of. Um, it's kind of cool watching these guys do that, fixing these old wells, bringing them back to life. You have things like that. Again, you're incrementally uh, bringing back one well with five barrels a day of production doesn't really do anything, but cumulatively, all these things help, um, you know, uh, solve the issue, if you will. So um, I just wanted to point this out that the world's demand for energy, at least as economies have become more complex. And again, don't forget about all these people now entering their S-curves, wanting the same things you have. They're going to put tremendous pressure and demand on these energy resources. So this is actually a big deal. Um, U.S. has like 25 days left of diesel. This is, you know, diesel is what actually powers the world economy, trucking, agricultural uh, activities, mining. It all runs on diesel. And you can see that we have a diesel supply crunch. I mean, part of this is the, um, during the pandemic, the United States shut down about 5% of its refining capacity. So we have re refining constraints. You have the... Um, demand that's there and it can't be supplied and then you usually would suck in supply from other places europe asia russia and so we've taken you know russia out of the mix and so we can't import their diesel so where are we getting diesel where's europe you know french have a big refinery uh strike going on um taking one of the major producers off you know or making it harder or longer vessel transit times, which is why we've been really doing well in the tankers stocks that we have in the portfolio. Um, but this is a big deal. I mean, you don't want to run out of diesel. You know, even here in Texas, I'm still seeing diesel prices of $5 a gallon. So I don't know what it is around the rest of the country. But um, yeah, it's, again, we're, we're in this happy motoring society where I think 75 or 80% of the goods that we consume are delivered via diesel truck this could be a problem. And so again, this is why you, another reason why you have upward pressure on the inflation rate, because energy, like I said, everything's a derivative of energy. So if the energy costs are going up, they're going to be passed on into the cost of these products and services. Uh, we said, even like a lawyer, we said that last week, even like a lawyer or accounting office is going to see their FedEx expenses go up because there's going to be fuel surcharges. Your electricity bill has gone up because the fuel surcharges for the higher prices of natural gas have been transmitted through to you, the consumer, as a pass-through. And so this, this bears watching. Um, at some point, the price will go high enough to ration the demand, I would suspect. But uh, if you're in the refining business, uh, this is a tremendous opportunity. If you're refining diesel or oil into diesel, this is a tremendous opportunity. Like I said, <clears throat> excuse me, this has been a tremendous, uh, you know, catalyst for the clean tanker stocks that we have in our portfolio. They've done well. They're all at 52-week highs. Some of them have doubled or close to doubling. 
uh, and we're seeing capital returns across the board. So I don't know how long it will last. Eventually, like high prices, you know, cure high prices, but we're not seeing a lot of, you know, new tanker builds and things like that. So um, I, I've used the word in the past, super cycle. I'm not educated enough to say that we're in a tanker super cycle. Other, some analysts have said that, but I think a lot of it was a lot of kindling in the woods, if you will, because of the um, no new builds and things like that. And then, you know, we, we forced onto this market, this, this economy of tankers, this um, discombobulation in the world trade markets for fuel oils and crude oil with the um, sanctions on Russia. And so that has a price. And again, these things, this is another commodity business. And so at the margin, you don't need much of a change or a discombobulation to force higher prices. So that's what we've, what we've seen. But this bears watching because this is, um, you know, we've seen the drop before and it recovers. Uh, we'll see though uh, what happens here, the bears watching. So what I was talking about earlier is European gasoline demand. Um, you see that it's peaks during the summer and then comes down during the fall and winter. Makes sense. You see the um, 2020, which was the pandemic. You see how much it dropped uh, and how it recovered. This is what I'm talking about. You can have a temporary, you know, um, pullback, but then, you know, ultimately this, the, 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 the stickiness of the demand is, is there. And so what we see is, you know, we're seeing like, where's the demand destruction in Europe? You know, I mean, here's 2022. I mean, we're right there where we normally are over the last several years, notwithstanding the pandemic. And it didn't even drop that much, right? About 10%. You know, you had this big, during the original lockdowns, when this thing started to open back up, um, it recovered rather quickly. It didn't go back to old, old normals, but you saw we're back to like, pretty typical demand, right? So again, um, this is uh, this is interesting to me. I don't see where the demand destruction is yet. It's not saying it won't happen. There was another chart, I didn't put it up, but it did show diesel demand was down in Europe, which makes sense because again, diesel is more of the economic um, lubricant, right? It, it All the trucking and all the other things that are happening uh, that diesel is used for is, is being... Um, is being crunched in Europe. So here we are, uh, coal, you know, the discussions were several years ago that coal was gonna go away. Coal was, the, you know, this hobgoblin that must be exterminated. And so here we are in a situation, I, I, I presume if you ask German policymakers, they'll tell you this is all temporary. But uh, here we go, it says, Germany will deploy more coal power plants for winter in bid to conserve gas supply. Yeah, we've seen that before. You're going to, we've talked about it before. When gas prices are high, if you can switch to um, fuel oil or coal because it's cheaper, you will do that where you can. The nation plans to reopen 6.9 gigawatts. That's 6,900 megawatts of coal and 1.9 gigawatts or 1,900 megawatts of lignite power capacity. Plants will be brought out of reserve or delay retirement, complicating green goal. I mean, the, the main goal of Europe now is not to, you know, the green dream has been put on the shelf. The destruction of Russia and the vassalship that they're under from the United States, in my opinion, uh, is forcing them to, you know, have this 
existential war. I mean, General Miley came out the other day. Uh, he's the, I guess, the chief of staff, uh, joint chiefs of staff, chairman, whatever that does. He's the head guy there in the U.S. And he basically said that the U.S. and NATO must win this uh, war. And it is a war between U.S. and NATO and Russia. And uh, so the Russians feel the same way. So again, we have no off-ramp because again, if they don't, if U.S. and NATO don't win, then what's the point of NATO? And what's the point of the U.S. hegemon? It can't, it can't enforce its will. It'll be shown to be a paper tiger. And so the green dream is over. It's just survival at this point. And again, we will see, I think that's part of the calculus by the Russian leadership is how much pain will the European people endure for, for what's going on in Ukraine? How, how deeply do they care about this? Are they willing to sacrifice their standard of living? Are they willing to you know, have high inflation, have businesses closed down? Are they willing to endure? Now, the leadership in Europe is because they're all in and they, they're all going to be kicked out eventually if this goes sideways, which it is going sideways. So they know they have to just try to get a win, you know, hoping against hope something happens. And the Russians are in the same boat. The leadership in Russia can't back down because if they do, then there will be change in power there. You know, it's, I, I want people to remember something about Russia. It's not one man, this cartoonish view that this Marvel Comics view that Putin is calling all the plays and he's a dictator and he's doing all this. <clears throat> Believe me, most of the Russian people are behind this. Okay. And so he needs a victory or he's going to be out. And it won't be, if Putin leaves, it won't be some guy that's going to be some big liberal that's going to say, okay, let's have peace. And we want to become like the West, the rules-based order and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. It's going to be even further to the right of Putin because there's many people in the Duma in Russia, many people in the Russian people that think that they haven't went far enough. So I'm not going to keep going down that road. It lists too much emotional responses in the comment section. Suffice to say the green goal is on the shelf for right now. And what's this mean for coal demand? Um, a lot of the coal was coming from Russia. And so now they have to find other sources for coal and crank up this lignite. I think, if you're an environmentalist or you care about the earth and things like that, you should look up on YouTube what lignite mining, this uh, more coal that's not fully developed coal. It has a lower calorie um, content. It's closer to the surface and you should see how they mine it. These huge mining machines, these bucket miners um, that just basically tear the earth up and turn it into a moonscape. This is what we've reduced ourselves to in Germany. Um, what they've decided, I guess they've rationalized is a temporary measure for a greater good. We will see. But uh, hey, like the Walker Cat said in West Virginia on those billboards, coal keeps the light on, keeps the lights on. And so we are very optimistic about uh, coal companies going forward. I don't think coal is going anywhere. I showed you that chart previous to this, previous slides where the, the other energy sources don't go away. They just maybe moderate a little bit, but you just, if you add renewables, you're just going to be adding to the general mix of energy, you're not going to displace coal and gas. There's just too much demand coming from the emerging markets. I mean, well, it's another point I've tried to make. If you reduce coal consumption or oil and natural gas consumption in the West, it'll just be uptake. The same volumes and more will be 
taken up in the east because of their development track that they're on. So it's it's kind of a mugs game. And so here, what we're starting to see, <clears throat> I don't know but the particulars of each one of these companies. I just thought this was interesting that, you know, we saw this in the UK. We, we put these vignettes up because it's important because it's going to affect real people's lives. It's going to affect the social fabric of these countries. It's going to affect the economics and political situation in these countries. You know, there was an estimation that almost 7,000 small businesses were going to close in the UK because of the high energy prices. And here's what you're seeing in Germany now. 125 years after foundation, German construction company, um, I can't pronounce these names, but it's insolvent. 130 years after foundation, German confectionery manufacturer Bodetta insolvent. 156 years after foundation, German automotive supplier Borgers insolvent. So I don't know the individual situation for each of these companies. Maybe they were already teetering and the higher energy costs pushed them over the edge. Maybe some of our uh, German viewers can comment on these companies or the other companies of what's happening there. Because again, if you are on the margins or if you've seen your energy prices or costs or inputs into your business go up two, three, four, five times, whatever it is, uh, we, we've pointed this out many times in various news items and vignettes from Europe that businesses just can't afford it. And so they have no choice but to close. And so you have the government scrambling around, uh, putting themselves on the hook for hundreds of billions of dollars to subsidize energy usage. And then of course, that's the effect of pulling in all this energy off the world market by, over, by really paying top dollar. And then you have other countries in the emerging markets that we've talked about before that can't get the energy, they can't compete on price. And so these costs have to be passed on. Again, expect to see more of this, right? Um, and this will get worse politically and socially. Uh, I know they don't show it on mainstream media, but if you're on Twitter, I mean, you should be able to see they have clashes with police in Germany and France, uh, mostly in France, but I've seen people getting beat in Germany by protesting, right? And you're already starting to see the unions come out and complain. Uh, you're seeing like AFD in Germany starting to get more um, traction. And, you know, I've heard like uh, Alexander Merikorius was talking about Robert Habeck, that when people come to him, I'm talking about pe other people in the government, I guess he had this confirmed that, you know, if you go to Habeck and say, well, you know, maybe we should reconsider because we're destroying our country with these, that he will have these people investigated for being like Russian agents. So this is what happens, right? I mean, these people are trying to cling to power. They got this all wrong. And, you know, some of the policies were put into place before they got there. I mean, it wasn't, you know, Habeck and Baerbach and Schultz that, tied German industry to Russian gas. That was Merkel, but you know, you have to deal with the cards that you're, that you're dealt. And, you know, um, I think they made a lot of poor choices and they continue to make more poor choices. And at some point, um, I don't care, even in, you know, a lot of people like to make fun of Europe. They're people like any other people. And eventually the breaking point comes and the anger builds. Okay. And there's going to be retribution. Yes, you can, you can have repression of people, you can cancel elections, you can 
you know, come down on the media, that just angers people more. If you, and I think it was Kennedy or one of these people that said that if you take away people's right to exercise their grievances via the ballot box or via the, you know, speaking out, they'll just take it to the streets and then violence is going to happen. Now, I'm not suggesting that's going to be the case, um, but you're already seeing the election results happening. As elections, more elections happen in Europe, you're seeing the pushback. It's a slow process. It's not going to go from, you know, I'm mad to fixing it. I mean, even like you saw what happened, there was a scandal in Italy the other day uh, because uh, Maloney, Berlusconi was making comments at his own party uh, Congress or meetings about they need to pull back on this thing with Russia and, you know, Italy needs to consider what it's doing here because we're destroying the economy and blah, blah, blah. And Maloney basically told him, you know, castigated him and said, keep your mouth shut. You know, we're pro-NATO, we're for this. So this is what I'm saying. These people are all, they, they may say certain things, you know, you may be, you know, pro-family, but you're not going to, you know, Georgia Maloney's not going to advocate for leaving NATO or the EU. It hasn't gotten that bad yet. I suggest it will get that bad at some point and parties, people will start saying that and that will start, it will get to the, that point, I think, in some cases, probably more in Central Europe, but, you know, we'll see how it plays out. But when, the, when a company fails, if it doesn't, even if it restructures, people lose jobs, okay? People's, you know, I don't know, um, I guess the worst that happened to me during the great financial crisis was I just didn't get a bonus that year. So I, I haven't been laid off. I haven't been fired from a job. I haven't had to consider what will happen. But many people have been in that situation. It causes angst. It causes uncertainty. It causes feelings of, you know, all kinds of things. So uh, that's why we know, you know, like suicides, alcohol, drug consumption, all bad things start happening, right? So this bears watching. You know, we talked about it last week. We pointed out that a lot of the major banks were backing away from their ESG commitments because they understand that there's money to be made in <laughs> fossil fuels. And so now we have BlackRock. I think it's Mr. Fink, uh, his deal. He was the, this, this company was one of the big advocates for moving away from fossil fuels. If you see, you see how these people that run these banks, they have no allegiance to any policy, you know, policy that is best for the majority of the people. They only care about one thing, making more money. Okay. Any way they can, and they don't care. And they'll say or do anything. One, six months ago, a year ago, we need to get rid of fossil fuels. We're ESG. We're putting all these, we're not going to loan money. And they're all backing away from it now because they see, and you see it too, if you were listening to like on Schlumberger's quarterly report, that there's going to be a tremendous investment boom in new hydrocarbons. And they know that's not going to go away now. Okay. That's starting to dawn on people. And so you saw when they had, like I said, they had the bankers up in front of Congress and that terrible woman from Michigan was asking them if they were going to stop loaning money for fossil fuel uh, development. And they all said, no. Matter of fact, Jamie Dimon said, hell no. But uh, here's BlackRock. Uh, BlackRock, the world's biggest asset manager, told a British parliamentary committee that it will not stop investing in coal, oil and gas, and that its role was not to, quote, engineer a specific decarbonization outcome in the real economy, unquote. Well, that's a big change from what they said before. I'm, I didn't have time to go and look up what they've said before, but I probably will now. I think they were on the forefront of decarbonization, ESG, yada, yada, yada. 
And so now, like I said, the winds have turned. They stuck their finger up in the air. Oh, man, there's a lot of money. So these people have no allegiance to the countries or the people that they operate in. And in a perfect world that I was oper- that I was king for a day, uh, would, these people would be taken down many, 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 many notches. They would be broken up. It would be, they would be out of it. They would be on the train out of town. That's it. Not going to let these people have this kind of power. And you're seeing the pushback even happen like with a lot of the conservative states with their pension funds. They're pulling the money from these people. It's all about money with these people. It's all about assets under management, collecting of fees, things like that. And in the end, the bottom line is the bottom line. When asked by the committee whether it would support a net zero scenario that called for, quote, no new investment needed in coal, oil, and gas, BlackRock said, no. BlackRock's role in the transition is as a fiduciary to our clients. That's what I've said all the time. You have a fiduciary responsibility to the clients, not to be making social policy. It is not to engineer a specific decarbonization outcome in the real economy, said the New York Stock Exchange listed company with a market value of $85 billion, which manages assets worth $8 trillion. If you remember, this was one of the companies, This when that uh, small activist fund bought a few shares of Exxon, BlackRock threw in behind them and they forced a couple of new board members on Exxon. And so we'll see if this actually means a change or if these people, uh, which is what they're typical of, try to keep a foot in each camp and, you know, navigate their way through this so that they come out on top. But I thought this was an interesting change of, you know, this is pretty in fact to say, no, we're not stopping investment. That's a change from a year ago. So, you know, as I think we're kind of like not spot on, but I think we're on track when we say, I don't think the ESG movement goes away, but I think we are at peak ESG. And now the, you know, the river will uh, subside from the banks down to some more normal level. It's not going to go away completely, but I don't think it may have reached its, you know, its peak of uh, um, influence, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens on the elections on the 8th. Uh, a lot of people are saying that there's going to be a big swing towards the Republicans because people are really tired and sick of what they are getting from this administration um, and the DNC. They didn't really vote for this is what I've heard. But that's not how it works, right, with um, politicians. Politicians, you know, in a country like the U.S. where you win with like, you know, 51, 52 percent of the vote, they don't take it as, well, we need to go in there and find the best policy. They, they, they think that you voted for them. In many cases, people just vote against the other candidate. And yet these people take their win as a mandate, and then they go in and do these policies. That's what you need to consider when you're voting. But most people don't consider that. Most people consider how well-spoken the person is, what they look like on TV, all kinds of nutty stuff that has nothing to do. I don't know how in one election cycle you can be a Democrat and the next election cycle you're a Republican. I don't understand. You have no, that, that's an indication to me of somebody with no philosophical anchor. How are you voting for a party that in one election cycle, the previous one that advocates many cases for weird policies and then the next election, four years later, you're different. And then four years after that, you're back again you're back and forth. You have no philosophical anchor. And that's most people, right? They don't have a philosophical anchor. They have, everything is done emotionally. 
so here's again uh, another warning by one of the major global metals traders on the world running low on copper. We keep talking about this. It's not just one person. It's different people every week saying the same thing. So, you know, you, you should be considering this. Global copper stocks have fallen to perilously, perilously low levels. One of the world's largest commodity trader, traders, Trifigura, has warned. Speaking at the FT Mining Summit, Costas Bentis, co-head of Metals and Minerals, said the copper market is today running with inventories that cover 4.9 days of global consumption and is expected to finish the year at 2.7 days, according to its own forecast. Copper stocks are usually counted in weeks. Considering the copper shortage that is happening now, I think it's fair to assume a higher price of what we have today. Is it going to be more than 15,000 a ton? That's what he's talking about, 15,000 ton. I think time will tell. Yes, I think it will be. You're going to need a very high price for a long period of time to coax investment into new reserves, production, mines, what have you. And these things take time. So we've talked about this before. You know, the next time that the copper price, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of these companies look good at these prices now. I mean, Rio Tinto, BHP, Tech, you know, I think what you want to do is look at these companies. You know, if you want to get into the juniors, you can do that. Um, but, you know, mining is cyclical. So, you know, I think when the Fed eventually pauses, I think that's the time to get long on these things. You may be a little early, but once they pause and they start cutting rates again, um, it's going to be to the benefit of a lot of these commodity prices, in my view. So I just like to bring this stuff up because, you know, I saw another uh, article about they're introducing like bug lunches in the Netherlands. This is all part of indoctrinating the youth as early as possible. That's how you make the long-term changes, right? Um this is why, like the Soviet Union, they had the, you know, pioneers, you would be a pioneer in elementary school, and then you would transition to the commissal, and then eventually to the Communist Party. Same thing in, like, Germany, Hitler Youth, and then into, you know, these various other uh, organizations that would transition and would prepare you and indoctrinate you. And once a child in a formative stage of 7 to 10, 11 years old, something like that, you inculcate a certain idea into their head, it's very difficult then to change that uh, idea, okay, or get them to uh, renounce that. And so this is what, you know, I've seen them happening, and you're seeing this more now. It's like more, more of this, you know, again with the bugs, who's eating the bugs? And you're seeing that, you know, they're trying to get people, it's not going to be older people or people in my generation. I'm never going to eat bugs. That's crazy. I'm not eating bugs. I mean, that was for like mentally challenged kids that would do that in the elementary school playground and the teacher would run over and, you know, dig the thing out of his kid's mouth. So uh, now we're saying this is what should be normal practice. I'm not doing it. So, but this is where we're heading, right? Because I'm going to show you another video here where I'm not going to show you the video, but I'll give you the link to it where uh, you can see how the indoctrination is taking place. But let's stick with Aldi. Now, I don't shop at Aldi. They have one around here. I've never even been in an Aldi. I heard it's like, discount groceries or something. It's a German company, I guess. I never go there. I don't know anything about it. But the article uh, sent out in the Daily Mail, I'll put a link to most of these articles that, that I'm able to. Aldi considers selling edible insects to help families through the cost of living crisis. Well, that's very nice of them. Budget supermarket Aldi is considering selling edible insect recipe kits as the cost 
of living crisis hits families. Bugs such as crickets are known to be cheap and sustainable form of protein. Now Aldi is weighing up whether to stock products by Yum Bug, which make the insect recipe kits. Quote, we want to take bug consumption mainstream. If we're able to get in front of all these audience, that would be an amazing opportunity, unquote. I think that was uh, one of the principles of Yum Bug saying that. And so what they're doing is, like I said, they're introducing this with the kids, trying to get them to, you know, it's all part of the whole save the earth um, because agriculture, you know, animal husbandry supposedly is the biggest contributor of climate change or one of the biggest and so we have to do things that are sustainable. And that means eating bugs. We can't, you know, and my motto is burgers, not bugs, but, you know, I'm going to be called a denier. And this is, this is part and parcel of, you know, eventual, you talk about like what goes on in China with the social credit system. This, this is what's we're moving towards. And this is why people need to kind of like wake up and pay attention because the masters of the universe, the technocratic, the technocrats that want to rule over you, they don't want they're not, they're going to move, move us, try to move us to a situation where they can do that. And how do you do that? Well, you do that with a central bank digital currency, which is being discussed by all major countries and all economic blocks are discussing this, implementing central bank digital currencies. It's for your good. It's easier. It'll, yeah, it's better for the government. Okay. They can track you. They know every purchase you make, what you're doing, your purchasing habits. Um, and they have the technology for this now. And this is where they want to move everybody under the guise of making it easier and more efficient for commerce okay but what they do in china is if you do things that the party doesn't like you doing whatever it is your social credit score goes down like your credit score and then you can't do certain things i read an article about a guy whose social credit score was so low he couldn't travel on any public transportation so the man walked 600 miles from wherever he was working on the coast in one of the major cities to his village for some type of um i don't know whatever festival or holiday they had and that's just an example, right? That's what they want to take everybody to. And there's a certain pop portion of the population here in the U.S., 30%. They're fine with that. They want that. They like that. And uh, a lot of them are just evil people that want to shove it down everybody else's throat because they don't like you and your political views. And so it's time to wake up because that's what's going to happen, right? Your social credit score doesn't allow you to buy beef or pork or chicken but you can buy bugs and they'll be made available to you or they'll just get rid of the stuff all along or you can't take a trip because you've used up your carbon limits. This is what they're talking about. And it's not conspiracy. This is what they want to do. It's, you know, they can also, there'll be, you know, no ability to shield income. They'll know everything that you're doing financially. This all ties together. And I think if you would have asked me two or three years ago, I just would have scoffed and said, come on, this is just not nonsense. Uh, I, I have to say that a lot of the so-called conspiracy theorists have been proven right over the last couple of years. And so I think it behooves us to at least consider what's going on. And if you can get to the children and indoctrinate them, which is what's happening, I'm not even going to get into some of the sexual conditioning that's going on, which is beyond the pale in my view. But uh, this is where we're heading. Now, some people that are listening to this are probably fine with eating bugs. I'm not. I'm not going to eat bugs. Sorry. Uh, I don't share your view that CO2 is a pollutant. CO2 is not a pollutant. You know, again, we have to tell, talk about our, uh, define our words. Because what happens is people don't define their words. What is a pollutant? Okay, we have to define that. Okay, CO2 is a life-giving gas. It, 
what all vegetation relies on for its sustenance, the process of photosynthesis, okay? So, which, you know, allows us to live, if, even if we're vegetarians or we consume uh, animal proteins from grains or grasses. But again, most people don't think about these things. Instead, they're just telling, you know, kids to eat bugs. I'm not eating bugs. So I wanted to point this out. Um, this is just one data point. This doesn't mean it's going to happen. But if you see in the past, as ISM uh, manufacturing prices paid index rolls goes down, CPI inflation has a tendency to follow it. Now, we don't know how influence this is, particularly just by energy. I don't know all the components, but you can see, I like to see when I see these big um, uh, differences in something like this, um, again, in the past, they've correlated fairly closely. And so we can either expect uh, the manufacturing prices paid index to go back up or what's more likely is CPI to come down. Why is this important? We're already starting to see some of the messaging coming from some of the Fed governors. Just in the last week, I was kind of surprised listening to them about um, not having a pause, but slowing down the and the rate of um, or the magnitude of further interest rate increases. So we're starting to get a sense that we may have, and there's so many people on one side of the canoe now talking about um, inflation forever, inflation is going to keep going up, um, doom and gloom on everything. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure I buy it. You know, we're in a, we're basically, in my view, in a, you know, just an interest rate, typical interest rate cyclical recession uh, at this point. And I think that um, as economic activity, I mean, housing's basically almost is, is not coming to a standstill, but it's going down pretty quickly. Go on Zillow in your area and look at the price cuts. People are cutting prices left and right. This is going to filter through into owner uh, rents and things like that. Used car prices are down the most they've been down ever. I think I saw a tweet from a used car guy on Twitter. Um, that's 5% of, uh, you know, the CPI. So all these different inputs into CPI are rolling over. Not all of them, but a large majority, enough to pull in the inflation rate to slightly change the perception, right, of the market. And if the perception changes that we've peaked in inflation, then the next discussion will be, okay, when does the pause come? And then when the pause comes, when do the cuts come? So you see the progression. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know. You know, this is just one data point. But the correlation here, when I see this, this amount of variance between two things that have been correlated uh, for a long time, um, it makes me wonder what's really going on. So I'll put a link to this. Um, this kid, this is what I'm talking about. These are some teenagers. I don't know the context of where this was done, but basically it's a short little TikTok video. I'll put a link to the Twitter uh, tweet that it, I mean, I don't know how to play these videos. I don't have time to be messing around online, but basically this kid says that farming needs to be stopped because it's the single biggest driver of climate change. This is what he says. Farming must be uh gotten rid of words to that effect because it's the single biggest driver of climate change so this is I, I don't know there's there's not enough context to really say okay does this kid understand where food comes from what farmers do 
Uh, does he just think livestock should go away and then we should go to the bugs? I mean, I don't know what this context is, but nobody would, nobody that knows what they're talking about would ever say, even say that even in any context that we need to get rid of farming. If you get rid of farming or you try to go to more sustainable farming, you know, Sri Lanka had the highest ESG score, I think almost a perfect score, like 99 out of 100 score. And you saw what happened there. The economy collapsed, agricultural production collapsed. And this is what they want to do. They want to move away from, you know, the very efficient, high volume farming that we do now with the all of the chemical inputs. And they want to move to this ESG compliant organic farming, which cannot sustain the amount of people we have on the earth. So again, if you want to get rid of hydrocarbons, if you want to get rid of um, this industrial scale farming, then my question to you is how many people are you willing to kill? Because that's what's going to happen. And so, you know, I'm not saying it's sustainable or unsustainable. I don't, I'm not an expert. I'm just telling you, I know enough to say that because of the bounty of hydrocarbons, the cheapness and ubiquitous nature of them that we've had over the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years, the advances we've made in row crop farming with production increases and efficiencies and yield uh, with more pesticides and herbicides and fertilizer inputs, it's allowed this abundance that we've had and the abundance has created an environment where life, human life can flourish. And so if you wanna start pulling these things out like on a Jenga game, then you're going to collapse that, uh, that paradigm and a lot of people are going to die and that needs to be discussed because i don't want to die i don't want to starve to death i don't want to be sitting here uh you know living like a hobbit uh you know hoping that i have a good enough harvest so i can make it through the winter that's how people lived in medieval times now does that mean that what we have currently is sustainable well that's another discussion we should have but just you know forcing it on or making these comments like this this is a perfect example of how people are indoctrinated. Okay, you this this person has been subjected. Obviously, you know we know that the current generation and the prior generation have been subjected since you know kindergarten with this stuff, and they actually believe it. So they just make comments like that. What's the problem? Get rid of farming. It's the biggest. Yeah, but what about all the people that are going to starve? Well, what about it? They don't even they're not able to, they don't have the lattice, as Munger says, the lattice work of knowledge to like piece it together. And so um, maybe they'll try to do it and institute these things, but the pushback will come. And that's again, where the opportunities come for us as speculators and investors. Um, I kind of shake my head when I see things like this, but again, you know, give maybe some benefit of the doubt because we don't, it's just a short clip. We don't know what the whole context of the conversation was. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate your attendance here. You know, we're getting like almost 5,000 views per video. That's pretty good. I mean, it's channel's really growing. I appreciate you guys coming here. I appreciate the viewership, the comments. Um, and again, you know, what we're trying to do here is identify the themes, identify opportunities that are overlooked by the masses, trying to get ahead of the curve. You know, let's use these cliches, right? We're trying to do the Wayne Gretzky thing. We're trying to skate where the puck is going to be, not where it is currently. That's what the majority of people do. They chase the shiny object. They don't have the patience to go arrive at, look at a situation and realize, okay, like oil field services, we've been on it for a year. There's been a stealth bull market going on. 
we've got I've got companies in the portfolio that are up, you know, 50, 60 percent. And we really haven't had a big move yet. We haven't had the money come into this situation yet. Same thing with uranium. We were early arrivers there. No one cared about it. There were like three people on Twitter talking about it. And, you know, now it's everybody's, you know, aware of it. And so you want to get to these situations before everybody else. You want to identify things. And I actually take it as a compliment when I talk about things on here or an industry or a situation and people come back at me and say, are you nuts? You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. I love it because that tells me that I'm on the right side of the boat when everybody else is on one side. Now, that doesn't mean to take a contrarian stance just to be contrarian, just to be a misanthrope, just to be whatever, you know, just to be like that, you know, that kid at school that dressed in black because he didn't want to be a jock or, or whatever, antisocial, whatever. It's to say, okay, here's a situation. Here's an industry. Here's a company. Um, does it have a catalyst? Does it have some prospect that people are not looking at? Or does it allow me to arbitrage time and say, I think that it's going to take a year, two or three years for this to turn, but I can buy now and be patient. Okay. And I understand that I'm looking for this particular catalyst to cause a re-rating. And then if that catalyst develops, I just sit, just wait. And that guys is the most difficult thing to do. Okay. A little bit of a tangent there. Again, thanks for your uh, viewership and we'll talk to you next week.